Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. A couple of weeks ago, we introduced a new fortnightly segment looking at kind of artistic activities activities, creative activities that parents and carers can do with their kids at home, things that will stimulate them intellectually, but also creatively. Joining us to uh, continue the conversation this fortnight, I'm joined on the line by Kat Sewell, who's an artist, facilitator, educator, co-creative director of the small to medium company, The Ballroom, and she's also a specialist in play. Kat, good morning. Hi, Richard. Really nice to speak to you. How does one become a play specialist, as, as in not a specialist in plays in the theatre, but a specialist in play and playing? I know. It's quite a, it's quite a fun uh, fun title to bandy around. <laughs> um, I, I did a Master's in Creative Arts Therapy after a Bachelor of, of Creative Arts, and, and uh, the more I did work around uh, how the different art forms related to each other, the more I realised that they... They're intertwined by a notion of play, and I started doing lots of um, programs with children. Um, and yeah, from there it sort of evolved into looking more and more around uh, around play and and its importance in early childhood development. Let's talk uh, about that. All, I just yeah. want to jump in and ask about that the importance of play uh, uh, in early childhood development. Why is it so important for kids to to play, particularly in a free form way, rather than a really kind of structured way? Well, play is um, you know it's actually super super critical in in how children develop, and one of the main ways. Um, that it helps that is actually through their brain development. So children, you know, from when they're born, their brains haven't finished growing. So every experience that a child has is actually helping to, to make new connections in the brain. So that's every, every single experience. And what happens when children are playing is that their, their brains are lighting up more than in any, other, in any other activity because they are engaged across all of their senses simultaneously. So they're moving, they're thinking, um, they're connecting with others, they're looking at social cues, they're imagining things. Um, so we know that it has a huge impact on how the brain, um, the brain develops in those early years. And it's also kind of in the way that we sort of think about how dreams help us to um, make sense of the day. You know, that's the brain doing its work overnight. Uh, children use play as a way to understand the world and to cope with uh, changes in the world. So, I mean, especially right now, you know, things like role play and pretend play and being really physically active are actually ways for them to, you know, feel what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, to test out power dynamics, to, um, you know, in the safety of a game, to be able to see uh, what might happen if. Um, so it's really, really, really important. And it's also just that release of um, release of stress as well with the endorphins and the, um, the joy that comes from play. Um, but pretty much play is is how children learn. It's the natural way we've been doing it for millions of years and it is, it is literally how children learn to be in the world. 
Now, you mentioned stress, and right now I'm sure there are quite a few parents and carers a little bit stressed that the kids are being cooped up inside, isolated, and once school is supposed to go back, they may not be able to. So, as we said, this uh, segment, we're kind of talking about some kind of games and exercises and creative activities that will stimulate kids both kind of intellectually, uh, will pass the time, and also stimulate them creatively as well. So what kind of ideas have you got for parents and carers and their kids to, to engage in in this way? Well, the first thing I would say just as a sort of, as a precursor is um, not to worry too much in that, that children are sort of innately creative and playful as it, you know, as I'm saying, that's their natural way of learning. So I think it is really important not to, um, not to take that element of stress. <laughs> you know, kids are really good at that. Um, and it's about just breathing and letting them, uh, letting them go and following their lead. Um, but there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about this morning, and, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about materials. Um, so the most important materials that you can give your children are what we call open-ended materials, so things that really simple things that can be used in lots and lots of different ways. So they're going to be our friend over the next little while. And also it's really interesting to think about it in terms of on a sort of design principle of what, what engenders play in children is often it's really important to uh, limit the amount of materials that are available at any one time. So if you just have one or two things out per day, then the in the you know by limiting the palette, so to speak, you're able to be a lot more creative of what you can do with those things, and also need to think about. Scale. So anything that is really big or really tiny, um, you know, engenders an element of playfulness because it's different than what they might normally see. Um, so a few things, like some of my favourite, favourite um, materials, which are really simple, which I've used for years and years. Number one is masking tape and string. Um, so even if you just have those two things out and then, and then that open-ended question of what could this be, what could we do with just these two materials? Obviously, natural materials, anything you can collect, like sticks and leaves are fantastic. Fabric, just, you know, old scarves or lengths of fabric or sheets. And another one I love heaps are ping pong balls and, and paper cups or plastic cups um, because they can be really active games inside. Um, even if you're stuck in, say, like an apartment, you can play really active, fun games and you're not going to, you know, break a window. And all of those materials, the great stuff, thing about that is that they can be used for children of all ages. So the material itself is so open-ended that a baby can play with it all the way through to a teenager, and they will just do different things with it depending on their level of understanding and their level of creativity um, innately. And it's about also thinking really laterally about a theme. So a, a few years ago, I was running a, a, a little program with some friends called Art Smash. And um, one of the days that, I, that we hosted it at our house, um, I had a theme of circuit. So it's about thinking laterally. So with that circuit day, so it was about we all hung out for about maybe two or three hours. And in that time, 
we drew a circuit on the carpet using masking tape, like a kind of giant maze. We made a circuit obstacle course in the backyard um, with really active play. We looked at circuits in, like, <clears throat> we had, like, an old stereo that, that was broken that we took apart, and we actually, you know, tinkering, and we used tools, and we took it apart to see what was inside it. And then we also made some music electronically and looked at how circuits um, and sound connected. So I think, yeah, it's about sort of looking at one object or one idea and really thinking laterally and asking those questions, what else could this be? I like the idea of kind of, what was it, string and, and sticky tape or string and masking tape? Masking, masking tape is awesome because you can put it on, um, you know, you can put it on most surfaces and it's not going to leave a residue. Um, and also you can tear it. You don't necessarily need scissors. Uh, you can draw on, on it as well. So, yeah, masking tape and string, you can do all sorts of stuff with. I mean, you could make like a laser course that they have to, you know, if you tape bits of string or... Um, uh, you know, across a hallway, for example, and you've got to kind of go through like a laser course. Or you can make a mobile with sticks and leaves and string and masking tape, or you could, um, you know, there's so many different things you can do with that, even pom-poms. We've got, um, we've, we've started decorating the tree outside the front of our house with colourful pom-poms just for the fun of it. <laughs> Which then not only uh, occupies and entertains the kids, but then brings a momentary joy and delight to passers-by as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, in terms of looking at that sort of creative thing, I think, I mean, yes, we can assist with children's projects, but actually what works really beautifully is if you, as the adult, also consider it as creative time. So you actually play and create alongside of each other or you do a co-creation of a work rather than taking over what the child is doing so that they make, you know, the perfect robot, for example. So you could both make a robot out of cardboard and tape, um, or you could, you know, join forces and do something together. But, um, yeah, really think about it as a time for adults to tap into their own sense of um, play and creativity as well. I really like that idea because, uh, and uh, one of my guests a couple of weeks ago, uh, no, only last week, talking about uh, drawing and getting into that, stimulating that right side of the brain. I suspect for adults who might be stressed about how they're going to pay the rent in a few months' time if things don't pick up uh, economically and so forth, the idea of sitting down and playing and letting all of that go and in a creative way that does stimulate that right side of the brain, uh, get you into that creative space, creative zone, that's going to be not only uh, a lovely way to spend time with your child, uh, but then also just a, a really calming activity for yourself as well. Exactly. So the creative process and that playful process is is just as, um, you know, effective for, for, for adults as it is for children. Um, mind you, the kids have, you know, a higher drive for, for being able to do it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think if we can if we're able, you know, even just in small pockets um, as adults with the children to really slow down and, and um, take that time to in, enjoy those small pleasures together. Another really nice idea that came from my mum actually was, um, you know, because the kids can't see their nana, is we've been doing um, something she's call, calling Nana's story, story Journey. So she started a story with just one sentence and she's been emailing it to us and then we add we add a sentence or two and then we email it back and so we've been doing that for a few weeks and seeing how the story evolves 
Um, so just, I also think, you know, it's really important to find creative ways to reach out and make connections with um, the people who you'd normally be seeing and, you know, giving cuddles to um, and, you know, do that in different ways. Like, for example, also another, just after this call, we have a, we have a date with a friend of mine who came up with a really cool idea of um, making a, like, 10-pin bowling set out of toilet paper rolls and, uh, and paper. So we're um, just about to have a video challenge family to family with a bowling down the hallway game, which is going to be quite fun. That sounds like it will be great fun indeed. I better uh, get along and get ready for that. It sounds like it could be a bit time-consuming, but certainly engaging as well. My guest yeah. has been Kat Sewell, who's an artist, facilitator, educator, um, co-creative director of The Ballroom, uh, an arts organisation and a specialist in play. Kat, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R Today. Thanks, Richard. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. My next guest joins us on the line. Nicole Bayer is uh, Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia, one of the peak bodies for the arts in the country. Uh, and Nicole has uh, been a guest on the program a few times, always when we're talking about arts funding, the arts ecology and the impact of funding, whether there's enough to go around. Those are the kind of conversations that Nicole and I have and uh, that's the kind of conversation we're about to have again. Nicole, a very good morning to you. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Good morning to you too. I didn't quite realise it was all, always about money, but you're right. It is. Well, it is often about money, but it's also about it the about the money. state of health of the broader arts ecology. And at the moment, it does feel like the small to medium sector, in particular, is. Um, shall we say, on unsteady ground. Last Friday, the Australia Council for the Arts announced the much-anticipated and hot, hotly contested uh, results of their four-year funding for organisations program, funding which ensures small to medium arts organisations around the country have stability with their programming and their operations for the next four years. We were concerned that there was not enough money to go around and now it really does seem like that's the case. 95 organisations have been successful in receiving four-year funding from 2021 to 2024. That's down from 128 in 2016, so it's a significant drop. Yeah, it surely is. And um, before that, there were 145 organisations funded, so in the previous cycle. So, yeah, we've actually gone down, um, you know, 50 or more organisations. Now, what does that mean for the, the strength and health of the sector when key organisations such as the Australian Theatre for Young People in Sydney, who are effectively the national youth theatre company and who provide great advocacy for their own sector, for example, what does it mean when they are defunded along with other youth arts organisations? Does that effectively mean that the whole theatre for young people sector is now on very unsteady and dangerous ground? Oh, look, particularly that sector, um, uh, there were seven organisations by my count that um, have lost their four-year funding in the theatre for young audiences and youth theatre sectors. So that's been particularly devastated, that sector. The, the, the point about that sector is that it has been um, steadily declining, you know, for, for probably a decade, actually, in terms of support. Um, and, you know, it's a sector that has often had to argue for its validity as, as sort of, you know, real theatre or, or real dance or, um, you know, whatever genre it is. 
that, that there's some, you know, it's, it's like they've battled the perception that if your audiences are children and families, then you're not really quite, uh, um, you're not professional or it's not a sort of a proper theatre company. There's that, that's been a battle that they've been fighting for a really long time. Um, and, yeah, and this latest set of, of decisions um, is just really devastating for this sector and um, many of them won't survive it because we've, we've got COVID, you know, on top of all of this, of course, um, and they've already closed for six or 12 months and, you know, if, to then be able to come back from that in any meaningful way is probably not going to happen for all of them. So... Take us back a step, Nicole. Why has yep. this happened? Why have the Australia Council had to defund a significant number of organisations? And we should point out that the Australia Council have done the best they can in terms of providing Absolutely. some funding for audiences to transition out of the uh, four-year funding cycle. So 49 organisations have received yep. transitional funding to assist uh, rather than being just cut off immediately. But why does yep. the Australia Council not have enough money to maintain the status quo? It's just a numbers game. So um, the, the funding that the Australia Council has been getting um, you know, since 2013 has declined. So in real terms, it's about 20% that it's declined since 2013. Um, and um, there, there, there are programs within the Australia Council that it actually can't touch that are directed by government. Um, and and those programs have just um, stayed pretty much static, you know, with maybe a little bit of uh, CPI added in there, a little bit of, you know, interest. Um, and the programs that fund the four-year organisations and also the individual grants um, and some other strategic initiatives, those are the ones where OSCO can... where the squeeze happens, you know, when this when these... when they the decline in funding happens, that's where the squeeze happens. Um, so it's not just a four-year program. It's, um, you know, individual grants. As we know, the, the, the success rate has gone down to like less than 10%, um, which is, you know, just almost nothing. Um, you know, and we're, so we're at a point where OSCO is nearly in breach of its legislation. So it, it's, its legislation is to be, uh, you know, an arts funding and advisory body Across the country, um, and and it's it's sort of unable to do that because it's 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 so strapped that it can't as you know as we've just seen they've 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 had to defund so many organisations and, and and nothing to do with decision making it's just numbers there just wasn't the money there um, and they're unable to really run grant rounds um, that are worth running you know they probably cost more to administer t than to run which is why they're cutting you know they've gone from four grant rounds a year to three they've just cancelled another one um, so they're in a really precarious position and and you know the advocacy we've been doing has been to say to people you know people who have been affected or audiences who care you know they're coming out in force to say it's not the Australia Council's fault we need to continue to advocate to government of you know why it's so important to have an arts funding body um, um, that does that's an arm's length from government and that has peer assessment and you know as we know the processes are all really robust um, so we need to advocate that the Australia Council continues to get um, some funding. Well, we continue to advocate for it to get more funding because um, there's, you know, something like t between 25 and, and $30 million still missing that, um, 
would go a long way to helping these organisations. When, when, um, when you say $25 yeah. to $30 million is missing, was that money that was yeah. taken from the Australia Council under George Brandis, the then Arts Minister in 2015, that has not been returned? Where has, where has that money gone? Yeah, there's that. There's that. Um, there's that money because there, there was $105 million taken by George Brandis and then when Catalyst was closed, it, the, the quantum that was returned in, in money and in um, grant contracts was $80 million. So there is that $25 million that's absolutely gone. Um, but, it, but, you know, in a, but that, that's across four years. Um, the, the Australia Council's been subject to efficiency dividends on top of that um, along the way and other bits and pieces, other cuts. It's quite complex when you look at the, the figures, um, as these government agencies are. Um, but as I said, you know, it's about a 20%. In real terms, it's about a 20% cut um, across, across the last sort of seven or eight years. So the cumulative effect of that has meant that much-loved organisations here in Victoria, such as St Martin's, one of the youth arts organisations you've mentioned, Polyglot Theatre, another kind of world-class company making remarkable work for young people. They've been defunded. Australian Book Review has been funded. Liquid Architecture has been defunded. The literary journal Overland has been defunded. And just expressing my personal shock, La Mama Theatre has also, uh, where I am chair, has also lost yep. its four-year funding. These are yep. all significant organisations, uh, none of whom have been doing anything wrong. That's the, no. the, the, the shocking thing about this is organisations that uh, were performing above and beyond their capacity um, uh, have been gaining plaudits for the, the quality of their work locally, nationally and internationally. They've been defunded. Now, those companies all have significant audiences behind them. Nicole, what can those audiences do to try to persuade federal government to give more money to the Australia Council to ensure that companies can be assisted in the future? What they can do is write to their local MP. So, you know, whatever electorate they're based in, you can find out. You can just look it up and find out who your local MP is and write to them, whatever side of politics they're on, and, and, and say why it's so important for them, you know, that they have La Mama. Um, in their neighbourhood um, or why, you know, as an artist or an audience member, it's important to have arts in their lives. It's, it's ironic, isn't it, that, in, you know, in the last uh, few weeks, what we've seen with COVID happening is so many um, art, art forms coming to the fore, you know, providing things online and music and um, reading material and all that sort of stuff that that's and the governments are actually pointing to that, as, you know, all these things that you can do or craft that you can do in your home. Um, and yet, um, you know, in, at, the, at the same time, in the same week, you know, we defund a lot of these organisations. And it is, it's the, what I was going to say before is it's the infrastructure that we're going to lose. And when these organisations close, it will take you know, a generation to get them back up again. It, they can't just open the doors again. It doesn't work like that. Um, so, you know, the, the thing about the one-year funding is it does give us another year to continue to work with government and to find, a, a you know, if, if it's not a stimulus package, if it's a recovery package, so that those 50 organisations um, can then get some four-year funding. You know, maybe that keeps that door open. Um, so, so that's, you know, there's still some hope there. 
Now, right. speaking of uh, funding, overnight, uh, as federal government was sitting, they did pass the $130 billion JobKeeper legislation. Uh, we were hoping that... Uh, I know that certainly uh, the Shadow Arts Minister and I believe the Greens Arts spokesperson both tried to get amendments to that bill so yep. that more arts workers would be assisted. That didn't go through. We did get yeah. an extra $27 million in support for Indigenous arts organisations, regional arts, and also the Arts Charity Support Act, which is helping yep. people uh, by providing counselling through this crisis. Is that $27 yep. million enough? Oh, it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. Um, I mean, it's, you look, it's great. It's great for those communities and they're really vulnerable communities. Um, Support Act has been doing a fantastic job, you know, for musicians. But the, because, yeah, as you said, the job keeper legislation uh, does not allow casuals who have worked for less than 12 months to access that $1,500 a fortnight. And that is a large percentage of uh, workers casual and contract workers in the arts. Um, so there will be there will be hundreds of thousands of people who do not who do not can't access the job keeper package. Um, and and that's a, a real um, really a big shame. I mean there's a, a couple of other things that, you know, are a problem with um, arts organisations if they are festivals and their income comes in in very sort of lumpy ways across the year, then demonstrating their lost income is also really difficult. So there are a few factors there that we had tried to take to Treasury and to the government um, to get changed, um, but sadly that didn't happen. Look, this, you know, this is an ongoing thing and government is still working on packages, so we are continuing to, to advocate and work with them um, to get specific packages for specific areas. So we certainly haven't given up hope yet. There's a long way to go. There certainly is. Uh, we're talking about yeah. a $50 billion industry uh, which is unable to operate because galleries, theatres, performing arts centres, festivals, public gatherings have been shut down. So an industry that contributes $50 billion to the uh, Australian economy every year. The uh, package that was being asked for, uh, Life Performance Australia and I believe uh, Mia and your own organisation, Theatre Network Australia, were suggesting in the organis uh, around the, uh, $850 million in a support package. We asked for $850 million, we get $27 million. It's a, a <laughs> bit of a slap in the face, but as you say, organisations are continuing to work, continuing to lobby, including you and your organisation, Nicole. So thank yes. you for the work that you're doing for the sector. Oh, you're welcome, Richard. And thank you for joining us on Triple R today as well. Obviously, the, uh, the issues we've mentioned about the fact that if you're uh, an arts worker who might work uh, contract to contract for eight different organisations across a 12-month period, yes, you're currently ineligible for the JobKeeper payment. That also applies to sessional teachers in tertiary education, for example, which is most of them. Uh, so there's a whole range of workers, not just in the arts, who this is uh, impacting, and hopefully uh, over the, the coming weeks and months, we have some happier news to report. Nicole Bayer is the Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia. Nicole, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, having you on the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. Angela Savage is the Director of Writers Victoria, which is a body here in Melbourne that supports writers of all forms and all ages and all styles across the state with workshops and opportunities and more. Angela, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. 
So before we get into our DIY art segment, and uh, thank you for being my guest for that little segment this week, um, I just wanted to know how you and the Writers Victoria staff are going. You're working in isolation, working from home. You're managing to stay connected, though. We are. Our, we, we like to say our doors are closed, but our work is open. Our office is open. Um, we are working across nine different locations, uh, keeping in touch at least once a week face-to-face uh, through the wonders of Skype and uh, GoToWebinar and Zoom, indeed. We're, we're just sampling all the different options. Uh, we've also got a program called Slack, which has proved to be very uh, good for keeping in touch in a very quick way, um, being able to... It's like the equivalent of the water cooler chats. Um, so, yeah, look, and, and we've um, worked very hard and very quickly to move everything that we offer on, online, uh, and we've had a fantastic um, response from both our tutors and our workshop participants who have actually found that they've really enjoyed the new format. Um, so, yeah, look, it's been, it's been immensely challenging, as it is for everybody, um, but I'm really proud of the team and the hard work that they've been uh, doing. Great to hear. Now, as I mentioned, uh, every, for the last few weeks, we've been running this little kind of DIY art segment. So we've looked at how to make a podcast at home. Perhaps you've always mm-hmm. wanted to make one and never have. Last week, we looked at drawing and particularly drawing for fun rather than thinking, oh, everything I produce has to be a masterpiece from the get-go, talking about the fact that it's a skill that you will develop and strengthen in over time. And it struck me that for many people, it's a cliche, but it's also a a cliche perhaps because it's true. Lots of people think, I should write a novel one day, maybe Mm -hmm. being in isolation and not being able to go out to bars and cafes and the theatre and the cinema. Maybe now is perhaps one of the best times possible to sit down and actually start writing. Would you agree? Look, I think it's quite possible. <laughs> I think it's quite possible because it's easier um, potentially to carve out the sort of time that you need to put in to be a writer. I do know a lot of writers, a lot of existing writers are really struggling with their creativity at this time. And I think, um, you know, I, I feel that we shouldn't succumb to the pressure to create um, in this space, but just allow it to come. And, and I'm happy to go into detail about... Um, the important work of of being silent and waiting and thinking as part of the creative practice, particularly when it comes to something like writing. There's a lovely quote from Alice Walker who says, if you're silent for a long time, people just arrive in your mind. And I want to emphasise that the start of writing may actually be creating the space for quiet reflection um, and to allow the characters to the, the people to appear in your mind. So that would be my first um, tip, if you like, or my first bit of advice, is, um, is to create that space. I think that's a really important point to consider because one of the challenges that we have at the moment is I think a lot of people are going, oh, I've finished work for the day, I've knocked off at 5 or 5.30, I walk from the room that my laptop is in into the kitchen or uh, into the lounge room and sit down, what will I do? A lot of people are immediately grabbing the phone and scrolling through Facebook, Twitter, news feeds, Mm. etc. That's not necessarily conducive to reflection and thinking. So certainly put Absolutely. the put the phone down, even switch the phone off for a while and just sit and let your mind drift, as you said, is one of the very first important steps in writing creatively. Now, Stephen King, I believe, used to say when people would come up to him at parties, they'd say, oh, I always wanted to be a writer. How did you become a writer? And he said, I sat down and I started writing. That's paraphrasing <laughs> it. But uh, it's... it's the, a lot of writing is hard work. It's just about sitting down and 
And the words don't have to be perfect the first time round. Indeed. In fact, it's funny that you should mention King because um, one of my favourite one of the quotes that I often use in my um, teaching creative writing is from him where he says, if you want to be a writer, you must do two things above all others, read a lot and write a lot. And he's also famous for his, his butt glue expression when someone says, how do you become a writer? And he says, butt glue, which is basically you, you glue yourself to the chair and you do the work. Um, and it's very hard to talk about yourself as a writer if you're not actually writing anything. So, yes, in as, insofar as reflection is a really important part of the creative process, Marelle Day calls it the couch work um, and Barry Maitland calls it mulling, you know, the time that you spend actually allowing your imagination, actually kind of communing with your characters, then you must take the next step, which is actually putting the words on the page or the screen. Um, there is no shortcut. <laughs> um, and, uh, and as you say, Richard, it's, you know, if getting the story down is just the first step, then there's the art of the redraft and the rewrite. But until you actually have even a bad page, you can't rework it. You can't rework a blank page. So step one, reflect. Step two, actually put writing down. What would you say are some simple exercises or, or kind of tricks to, that people can use to start writing? It doesn't, for example, don't necessarily sit down and go, oh, I have to write a novel now. But are there Correct. kind of some simple ideas just to get the words flowing or some exercises sure. to a, that people can approach so that they can start thinking about writing anything down? Sure. But one of the um, exercises I like to uh, share is about a premise for a story. How you, how you create a premise for a story. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to take a vignette or an anecdote or something that stimulates your imagination and ask, what if? Okay, I'll give you a quick example, Richard. Years ago, I was um, wheeling my daughter in a pram to childcare and I passed a man on the street who had uh, teardrops tattooed on his face and what looked like a restricted breed dog, like one of those American bull terriers or something like that. And I just smiled at him because I smile at everyone. And, you know, it wasn't an unpleasant encounter. But on the way back from the childcare centre, I started to think, what if someone reported that man for having a restricted breed dog? And what if he thought it was me? And I let that idea sit for a while. And I turned the man into a woman. And I envisaged her in a flat with this dog and having recently been released from prison. And the story that came out of that was eventually called The Teardrop Tattoos and it actually won a, um, a Scarlet Stiletto Award one year. But that's an example of how you can just take what was really just a chance encounter and turn it into a premise. And some of the other possible sources of inspiration for this are looking at personal ads or classifieds, both in historical media, say through something like Trove or just through your local paper. Um, Overheard snippets of conversation can be great story starters. That's a little bit harder in the era of social distancing, but um, all the same, you might pass someone in the park who says something interesting. Um, you can take a line from an existing story that you love and just take that one line and, and ask what if, twist it around a bit. Um, and also being attuned to what's in your environment. Like you might see an abandoned shoe in a gutter or see a cryptic message in some street art or an abandoned toy in a park. There's this lovely quote from Gary Disher who says, storytellers are alert to the plot potential and everything they see, hear and feel, everything that catches their attention. So that would be my, my little starter. So see what catches your attention and turn that into a story premise by asking, what if? One of the, the 
activities that I used to like to, to play around with when uh, either if I was writing creatively, which I used to do. I, I, you know, mm -hmm. I, but uh, journalism has kind of taken over. Um, but uh, I also <laughs> used to... kill the creativity. <laughs> it will. It will. Uh, you spend all day in front of the computer writing about other people's stories and then, then you get home and go, oh, I don't really have the, the headspace to write my own. But I also used to run uh, writing workshops back when I worked at uh, the youth arts organisation Express Media. And mm. one opportunity, one, one kind of task I would sometimes set young writers, uh, particularly if a, a group of high school kids going, well, I can't write. I was like, well, no, everybody can. Uh, you, you, it's a muscle. You exercise it. It gets stronger. Think about your favourite place and now write down five words to describe what you might touch there. Now five words to describe what you might hear there. So encouraging people to ground themselves and to think imaginatively and to remind them that writing isn't just about writing sentences. It's about creating impressions. It's about Absolutely. conveying the mood or a tone or the, a sense of place. And, in fact, that's, um, that was the second little activity that I had lined up um, very similarly. When I teach writing about place, I often point out that the way you engage the reader's senses is to engage the character's senses. Um, and often writers will limit their descriptions to just the visual. So I suggest that you close your eyes and you imagine your character in the setting that you're creating and then open them and take a minute to write down what they can see, what they can hear, what they touch, what they smell and what they taste. Now, you obviously won't use all of that detail in a piece, but hopefully through that exercise you'll have a detail or two that are really vivid and concrete and possibly even, best of all, that tell us something about the character, shed light on their personality or their tastes or their history. And that can be a really nice little activity just to make your writing more sensual um, and more engaging in that way as well. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Angela Savage, who's the director of Writers Victoria, and we're talking about some DIY tips to get your own creative practice going while you're in lockdown, while you're in isolation. Uh, but how do you go, Angela, from some of these creative writing exercises? What's the next step in terms of writing a short story, for example, writing a novel, writing a memoir, writing just for fun, writing a story about your day? How do you get from these initial ideas to more concrete writing? Look, I think, I think the easy answer, Richard, is you just keep going. Look, there's no right or wrong way to write. In fact, you can start anywhere. Um, you can start by writing fragments, by scenes, by chapters, whatever excites you or whatever makes sense to you. Some people won't sit down and, until they've done or won't feel comfortable with the creative writing until they've done a fully-fledged plan, chapter plan. I've seen certain writers work like this. That's not how I work. I'm much more of a pantser, as in someone who flies by the seat of their pants. Um, I like to sort of start and then discover the story as I write it. So there's no one way. You can go either way with planning or pantsing, but it is about just getting the story down, just putting the words down. What will help, I really believe, is reading as well. So... If you're wanting to write short stories, read some really great short stories. Um, there's some terrific short stories being published in Australia at the moment. Josephine Rowe is one of the writers. Sean O'Brien's collection is really amazing. Um, you know, Rowena Gonzalez. There's some just stunning short story collections. Melanie Cheng. Pick up any one of those. Have a look at what those writers are doing. Um, and then, you know, I think you do internalise, a bit like you were saying about working that writing muscle, you also internalise... Um, techniques and, and, and read slowly. Do actually look at what the authors are doing and then have a go at actually writing that sort of work yourself based on what you enjoy. Certainly I love that idea of 
the, the beautifully turned phrase that you might read in a novel or something, sitting down and thinking, how would I write that? How would I mm. kind of tell mm. that story or that rewrite, cre- recreate that line in, in my own voice? So there's, mm. a, there's a lot of exercise and there's also a lot of opportunities that Writers Victoria present. I just wanted to briefly acknowledge that uh, if, for example, you become a member of Writers Victoria, you offer uh, mentorship opportunities, you offer manuscript assessment services, and of course, mm. as you've mentioned, a range of writing workshops and courses, masterclasses and more, all of which are now pivoting online. Indeed. And we've got a flash fiction competition running on Twitter. So every day in April we send out a prompt word and we invite you to send back your stories using that word in 30 words. And that's a fantastic little online community of supporting each other in that story production. Um, And we've also got a a new event starting up called Live Write, which will be an online basically like a shut-up-and-write session where you, you go online with other writers and just write for 25 minutes. It's designed to increase your productivity. Um, we're also about to launch a new suite of services um, that will provide feedback on your writing, your first page, your first chapter, one of your characters, that kind of thing. Um, we're very, very keen. We understand just how um, difficult it can be at the best of times to be a writer and how isolating, um, even more so during the time of COVID-19. So we're really, really keen to support writers and help uh, you to uh, rest assured that you are part of a community and a community that cares about you. Certainly for people who are trying to find the time to write and suddenly discovering that the school holidays have started early and that the kids may be around the house for much, much longer, again, finding that space to write, the physical space mm. and the time and the headspace to think, to contemplate and to actively write will be a challenge. So I would certainly recommend that people jump online, check out writersvictoria.org.au and the services they offer there and follow Writers Victoria on Twitter, which is at writers underscore Vic and and uh, as Angela said, there'll be the flash fiction competition running this month, 30 words in 30 days based on a daily prompt. Angela Savage is the director of Writers Victoria. Angela, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining Thanks, us on the program. And, uh, Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And just before I let you go, uh, coming up at midday, Chris Gill will be celebrating uh, 10 years of his show, Get Down. He said to say hello. Ah, thank you very much for lovely Chris. Congratulate him on my behalf. I absolutely will. Uh, Angela Savage, thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, check out Writers Victoria at writersvictoria.org.au. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too, Richard. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 